Father, we give you thanks for your word. It is mighty, as the title of this sermon says, but even more importantly, it's what your, it's what your word says um, of the power of it, that it's transforming. In fact, your word is all around us. Your creation is your words expressed. And so we pray that you would grab us by this, your, your, your scriptures, your holy written word, and, and pray that you would perform a recreative work in our hearts. Somehow speak through me and uh, pray that your power would be unleashed during this time. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we've, we've been in the book of Genesis now for, um, for some time, since August. And as we've made our way through the book of Genesis, maybe you've been reminded that this Bible is a, is a difficult book. It's a tough book in places. Um, and, 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 and there's a lot, for those reasons, there's a lot of people that don't like the Bible. This may be surprising. There's many people that don't like it at all. They want it out. Just recently, uh, in the last couple of weeks, a man in Florida named Chaz Stevens has written a petition asking, calling for all the Bible to be removed from every classroom because of the, the violence that exists in it and the sexual uh, sin that exists in it and, and, and all the things, the, the judgment, all the things that are, that are offensive in it. So let's get it out, right? And, and not just Chaz Stevens, there's, there's been entire nations that have sought to stamp out the Bible. The, the, the German Nazis burned and removed uh, the law, the, the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures from their existence. And in some cases, even got rid of Bibles, whole Bibles, New Testament, Old Testament, all of it. Same with the Soviet Union. Uh, from 1957 to the 1990s, there was hardly a Bible printed. There were no Bibles printed legally during that time. Get it out. Ban it. Stop it. Uh, and the same could be said in the, in the People's Republic of China. A similar bans and restrictions on the scriptures are taking place. Not just communist, kind of atheistic regimes. Muslim regimes as well don't want the Bible in their, in their lives, in their society, in their country. Countries like uh, Saudi Arabia, Afghanistan, Libya, Malaysia. In fact, I just heard, recent, I just heard this week a podcast, wonderful podcast. I'll share it through the email this coming week, but of, of just the situation in Afghanistan for Christians. The word, it, it's become, it's replaced North Korea as the hardest place for a Christian to live as of January. They don't want Bibles there. You give them big trouble for having a Bible there. It's banned, right? And so all of this is a cause for gratitude that we have such ample supply of scriptures that we have. We walk around with a Bible of some sort, I would assume, on our phones, Everywhere we go, we've got all kinds. Not only do we have a translation of the Bible, we've, our big dilemma is which translation should I use? Right? We're just loaded with Scripture and Bible. So that's a cause for gratitude that we have such, such opportunity to, to access the Scriptures. But even we as Christians, I think, can be tempted to want to put a ban on the Bible, on portions of it, not the whole Bible. But there's, admit, you got to admit to yourself, there's certain pieces of the scripture that you don't really like, that your heart sort of recoils against. Thomas Jefferson, uh, to, to my knowledge, not a Christian, um, he, he, but he, took, he, respect, he appreciated the Bible, and he took a razor blade and scissors, 
And he liked Jesus' moral teaching, but he didn't like any of the miracles, any of the supernatural stuff. So he went through his Bible, and he clipped out all references to like his death and his resurrection and the miracles and, and had his Thomas Jefferson Bible that just had Jesus' teaching, his moral teaching. Now, we think, well, that's, that's offensive. We would never do that. But don't we sort of do that? I don't like those violent passages of the Old Testament. Or I don't like the sexual sin that takes place here. Or I don't like God's judgment that I see here. Or God's mercy to these people here. I don't like the exclusivity of Jesus. Only through Jesus can you be saved. And so we sort of, we don't literally take scissors, but, you know, figuratively, we kind of clip those things out, toss them aside. We'll ignore that, and we'll move right along to the parts that we like. Let me, let me gently success, uh, suggest to you that you do that at your own peril. The Word of God stands. All of it. It is mighty. You can't, you can't thwart it. right? We, we, say, we say quite often around here from Isaiah that all flesh is like grass. It's glory like the flowers. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's Word stands forever. God's word will stand, and we can't stop it. We can't bring it down. Right? Um, we can suppress it. We can ignore it. We can burn it. We can ban it, but we do so at our own peril. I'm imagining like a hiker walking through the mountains on a trail, and the path is clear, and then they turn the corner, and all of a sudden, they've run into this enormous mountain wall. It's just, it's just, a, it's just a solid rock wall. There's no way forward. Absolutely no way. So what does the hiker do? They can start kicking against the mountain wall. Maybe they could start punching at it or like headbutting it to try to get through. But it's futile. And so it is with the word of God. It's like, it's like, a, it's like a mountain. It's just, it's there. We, we don't have the power to stop it or to control it. That's the word of God. So, and here, let me say this too. The Word of God existed before you were born, and it will exist long after you were born. It stands forever. That's what, that's what the Scriptures say. The Word of God stands forever, like it or not. Now, in this passage this morning, I want us to focus on two things. The Word of God delivered and the Word of God received. So those are our two points for this morning. The Word of God delivered and the Word of God received. But let's, let's do some background here just to kind of bring us up to speed again. The, uh, Genesis is the first book of the Bible. And the word literally means beginnings. It describes the beginnings, the beginnings of the heavens and earth, the beginnings of um, life in the fall, the beginnings of life outside of garden. The, well, let's say the beginning of hu- human existence, right, in the garden, the beginning of life post-fall, life lived in sin, the beginnings of God's work, to bring about salvation in the world through the family of, of Abraham. And remember Abraham, uh, in Genesis chapter 12, God said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make uh, many descendants. Your, your descendants will be like the stars of the sky. And he promised him land as well. And so Abraham is walking around clinging to these promises of land and descendants. But they seem so remote He and Sarah cannot have children. They're way beyond childbearing years. They couldn't have children during their childbearing years. And God miraculously provides. And then the next generation, Isaac and Rebekah, they could not have children. 
And Isaac prays to the Lord that the Lord would grant them children, and he gives them twins, Jacob and Esau. And Jacob, we've been following Jacob's life since Christmas time, and uh, Jacob has now had 12 sons that are the, the beginning. Jacob has now become Israel. This is the beginning of the 12 tribes of Israel, these 12 sons here. And so now the story is shifting focus from Israel, or Jacob, to his sons. And we see that in that word uh, generations in the ver- first verse. It's, it's, it's signaling a new, the, 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 the final book of the book of Genesis. So we're going to focus now on the son. And the focus even there is on one of his sons, Joseph, that we'll see, as well as Judah. But, but um, Joseph is kind of the, the key character in this. Now, they've been back in the land for about 10 years. And we've seen some strife in this. Well, actually, we've seen plenty of strife. I shouldn't say some. We've seen a lot of strife in this home. And we're seeing that that's going to continue this morning. In fact, it, it kind of escalates again this morning in our passage. So let's look at verse 2. It says, these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brother. He was a boy. I think probably a better translation is he was an assistant to the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. So he's sort of serving as their little underling out in the fields doing the pasture work. And the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, the servants of Rachel and Leah, are Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. So Joseph is out in the field serving with these four brothers. Now here's the problem, though, for Joseph, one of the, the, one of the youngest brothers. Not the youngest, but almost. His brothers don't like him. They don't like him. And we get our first clue as to why they don't like him in verse 2. Look at the second part of verse 2. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their fathers, to, to their father. I, I like the way it puts that, right? Have, parents, have your youngest siblings ever bought, brought a bad report to you of their siblings? <laughs> Or, or teachers, if you teach, do you ever have a student that likes to bring bad reports to you about their classmates? Like we have a word for it. It's called tattling. He's tattling. on, And we don't know what the, what the issue was. But he comes and he tells his, brother, his father, they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. And here's the, prob- here's the problem with tattling. It's pride-driven. It's driven by pride. It, you're not saying this, but this is the subtext to it. Uh, teacher, teacher, I, I do everything right. I followed all the instructions that you gave, but this student over here is not doing it the right way. They're messing up. They're not following your instructions. Instructions, Or maybe, maybe a son. Mom, dad, I, I'm doing everything right. I did exactly what you asked of me. But my, little, my older sibling right here, they're, not, they're cutting corners. They're not doing it right. See, there's pride. They're, it's not driven by love. It's driven by an effort to prop up your own ego over against their failures. It actually takes delight in seeing those that you should be loving failing. That's what tattling is. And that's what Joseph does. And Jacob, the father, and by the way, his name is changed to Israel. I'm going to probably call him Jacob more than Israel, but Israel, Jacob, same, same person. Jacob seems oblivious to it. Verse 3 says that Israel, or Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his sons. Jacob favors Joseph, and he's probably unable to see anything wrong that Joseph could be doing. 
that this is just, you know, this, this, this Joseph running in and telling Jacob what his brothers are doing, that they're not being nice or not doing things right or whatever it is. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't see all of the underlying pride in Joseph's heart. Joseph is prideful. Now, in order to kind of understand, there's a lot of undercurrents here that are, that are in play, and we need to kind of review those real quickly. If you remember Jacob and Esau, actually, let's go back, yeah, two generations. Jacob and Esau, did you know that there was favoritism in that family? Remember, Isaac loved Esau, Rebekah favored, loved uh, Jacob. So Jacob has experienced firsthand what he's dishing out to his sons by favoring Joseph over against his other, his other sons. And then the marriage between Rachel and Leah. Jacob has favored Rachel. She died last week in, in birth, uh, giving birth, but, but Jacob favored her. And his favoritism of her trickled down to the sons, to the children. Remember when Jacob and Esau, Jacob's confronting Esau and his army of 400? And I mean, we, we all think he's going to die, right? That was the last thing Esau said. I want to I kill my brother. And 20 years later, there's this encounter, and Jacob's lining up his tribe, his family, and he puts, he puts his servants up front, and then he puts Leah and her 11 sons on the next line. And then who does he put at the very back? The caboose of the family. We've got to keep them really safe. Rachel and Joseph, they're at the back. And you know those brothers saw that, and they're, th- they're, they're putting two and two together. And this, thing, this has been happening over and over and over for generations. And it's building, and it's reaching a, a boiling point. And so one of, the, one of, the, one of the, the triggers for the action that's about to boil over is the tattling. But the second thing is this coat that Jacob gives. Look at verse 3 again. Oh, let me say one more thing, too. One, it says that Jacob, yes, Rachel's son, that plays into it. But, but the real thing that Jacob loves about Joseph is that Joseph is the, is the younger one, one of the youngers. He's just like Jacob. Jacob's got a soft spot in his heart for the, for the underdog, for the firstborn. The, or not the firstborn, the, the, the lastborn, just like him. Okay, so verse 3. So Israel, Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his sons because he was the son of his, of his old age. And then verse 3. Jacob made him, made, made uh, Joseph, a robe of many colors. Now, this is not just a fancy robe. Um, it, it is Jacob issuing blessing and inheritance to Joseph. It's, it's Jacob saying, here's the keys to the kingdom, to my kingdom, my, my, my tribe. You're the man against not these, any of these sons. It's you. He's giving that to them. That's what the coat represents. It's, it's Jacob giving his inheritance, his blessing to Joseph. And of course the brothers don't like it. Verse 4, they envy. Just remember their moms envying each other? over who, One has children, one has Jacob's love, and they just can't stand each other. It's this ongoing fight and tension. And here's the same thing working itself out in the next generation. It says verse 4, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him, and they couldn't speak peacefully to him. They couldn't even talk to him with kindness. And making matters worse. So there's the tattling, there's the robe, and then there's the dreams. 
He's got these dreams. And this is important. This is important for the whole, the, my whole point this morning. I want you to understand these dreams as God's word to this family of faith. That's what these dreams are. There's no scripture in play at this point in history. That would be written by Moses 400 years later, these stories. This is, God is speaking to the people in Genesis in a, diff, in a number of different ways. In Genesis 1 through 11, he's speaking primarily through what, what's called a theophany, by actually appearing to people. And then in Genesis chapter 12 through chapter 35, he's speaking in the form of, um, of dreams, speaking in the dreams. And then in Genesis chapter 36 through the end of the book, God pulls back even further and works primarily through providence. But there's dreams here. Now, God doesn't say anything in these dreams, but the actual message communicates God's word. It communicates God's word. That's what this is. These dreams are God's word to the family of faith. It's, his, it's God's divine communication to Joseph. And there's two of them. Now, when what are they? Well, the first dream is Joseph dreams that they're out bundling these uh, stalks of grain and they're tying them up into their bundles and they're kind of throwing them to the side and, and all the brothers are doing this. And Joseph's stalk like, rises up. You know, a limp stalk of grain rises up into the sky, like, lifts up. And all the brothers' stalks, they, they bow down to Joseph's stalk. Okay, so that's dream number one. Second dream the sun, the moon, and 11 stars. I wonder where that number comes from. 11 stars all bow down to Joseph. That's the, those are the dreams. So I said the first point was the word of God delivered. Now we're getting into that point. So Joseph, the, the word of God has been delivered in these dreams. And now Joseph is about to deliver the dream to the family of faith. Okay? And think about this. How, how is Joseph going to deliver this dream? I, there's no way around not doing it <laughs> with pride, right? I mean, even if he comes at it in a in kind of a hum, attempt to, to be humble, it's like, you know, he can't say to his brothers, I've got, I had this dream. I'm, I'm trying to figure it out. I'm wondering if you guys could help me. I've got this stock, this, this uh, sheave, and it's rising up, and all, your sheaves are all bowing down. And what, what does that mean? And here, maybe this will help shed light. I've, there's another dream. The sun, the moon. And 11 stars are all bowing down to me. What do you think that means? See, he's, 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 Joseph is delivering the word of God, but it's all bound up in his own pride and arrogance. Joseph's thinking to himself, I'm on the fast track to God's blessing. I've got dad's love. I've got God's love. And I'm coasting to dominance, baby. The whole family's going to bow to me. And God proved it because I got these dreams. Now, little does Joseph know, there is a serious humbling coming Joseph's way. That it will be realized, but it's going to come after a lot of pain and difficulty in the life of Joseph. So that's coming. But here's what I want you to see. The word of God, even though it's delivered by an arrogant little, we'll just call him a brat. He seems like a brat. His brothers certainly think so. And I do as I kind of read through this. He's a brat. The word of God is delivered through that character, but it's not affected by the delivery of him, of, of, of all of his flaws. I, I've been discouraged to see Christian leaders and teachers and pastors having these falls 
where we realize that there was, there, was, there was a lot of sin in their life. There was a lot of abuse or failure. And it's sad. It's sad to see. It's troubling. It's caused many to abandon their faith. But a preacher or leader's arrogance cannot overwhelm the word of God. It can't stop it. It doesn't thwart it. It doesn't mess with it. Joseph here seems driven by pride, and many Christian leaders are. My own, I, I, I'm, I'm loaded with flaws, and my motivations are hardly perfect. And here I am, week in, week out, delivering this word of God. And here's what I take comfort in. It doesn't depend on me. It's, the, it's actually the power of the word itself. Just a, just a means that God uses. Not based on the performance of the teacher or their failures even. It stands apart from those things. And you know, it reminds me of what Paul mentions in Philippians where he talks about those that are preaching Christ from envy and rivalry out of selfish ambition. And he says, well, so what? Does that mean that it doesn't, doesn't work or it's like failing somehow? And he says, no. Only in every way, whether it's in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice, Paul says, because, again, the power of the word does not lay in the deliverer of the word, but in the, the word itself, in the message itself. That's where the power is, right? Many of you listen to the Mars Hill uh, podcast thing about the rise and fall of Mars Hill, and for all the flaws and all the abuses, all the issues there with the leader, lives were changed, weren't they? Many people came to Christ, people that you wouldn't have even expected to come to faith. They came to faith because the word was there and it was just active in that congregation despite all the fall, the fallenness and foibles of, of the leadership, right? It's the word of God. It stands apart from the person delivering it. So that's the first point, the word of God delivered. The second thing we, we want to focus on is the word of God received. The word of God received. So the brothers are jealous um, and, and uh, not helping the situation. Look at verse 14. It says, uh, Jacob sends Joseph, right? They're, they're out working in the fields. They're, they're working and laboring. I don't know why Joseph's at, we don't know why Joseph's at home, just sort of hanging out at the old tent. And then J Jacob has this great idea. Why don't you go out, little brother, to your older brothers and go check on them to make sure that they're doing everything okay? Like, that doesn't sound like a, a good plan for Joseph, but nonetheless, Joseph kind of unsuspecting, throws on the old fancy coat, just sort of strolls out to the pasture to find his brothers, and little does he know, big threat on the horizon for him. Little does he know how much they actually hate him. And so they see him coming. They see him coming, verse 18 and following. They see him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes the dreamer. Let's kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what becomes of his dreams. So, in other words, the hatred, the coveting, the envy. Remember the Plantinga distinction on coveting versus envying? When you covet what somebody else has, you want what somebody else has. That's what coveting is. Envy is wanting what somebody else has and not wanting them to have it. Wanting, them, wanting their life to come to ruin 
And that's where they are. They, 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 don't, they don't like the coat. They don't like the dreams. And they, they, not only do they want what those things represent, but they want him dead. That's what they want. Especially the dreams, this word of God to the family. They want it dashed out of existence. Right? Just like these countries, these atheistic and Muslim countries that try to squash the word of God, get it out. We'll use all force and power possible to stop it. And that's what they're thinking. Stop the dream. We'll see what becomes of his dreams, verse 20. We'll see what, what comes of this. And then Reuben, the oldest brother, feels some pressure. Right? He still kind of feels the weight of the, being the firstborn. I'm kind of responsible for all that's going to happen here. So I, and he says, verse 21, when he hears what they're saying, he said, he rescued Joseph out of their hands, saying, let's not take his life. And Reuben said, don't shed any blood. Throw him into this pit in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. Now, remember Reuben? He's the firstborn. Last week, do you remember what Reuben was doing? He was sleeping with his father's concubine. And we said that that was driven not by lust, but by a political power grab. Because he believed two things, actually, I think we're kind of going on there. One, Rachel had just died, Jacob's most beloved wife. And Bilhah was her servant. And he's trying to defile Bilhah so that she doesn't take pl- Rachel's place as the best wife in the, in the family. So that hopefully that goes to Leah, Reuben's mother. But second, Reuben in the doing this act is asserting his own virility to the tribe. Saying, I'm the man now. I'm the one that you guys follow. But guess what happens? From, this, from that point forward, and this is the first example... Reuben, his word is impotent. It has no power. The brothers never listen to him. He keeps talking, but they don't listen. It's like he's lost all strength of leadership. He's lost all all that is being a firstborn. And so, verse 23, Joseph comes, and they strip him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, they took him, they throw him into the pit. The pit was empty, there was no water in it. There, there are these pits all over this part of the world because it's a dry area and there are rain seasons. And so the, the carving out of these huge pits was to preserve the rainwater that came in the rain seasons so that the droughts could be survived. But it's, it's dry right now, this pit is dry. And so he is stripped, Joseph, buried in a hole in the ground. And, and guess what his brothers do? Verse 25, so callous. They start eating. They sat down to eat. Right there, while he's fearing for his life, what's going to happen to him? And then Judah says, actually, before Judah speaks, guess what comes? Their second and third cousins, the Ishmaelites. Remember Ishmael? Uh, Abraham's son with, um, with Hagar? The Ishmaelites, um, th- these are second and third cousins to, to, these, to these brothers. And they come along, and they just happen to be trading down in Egypt, and they pass by. And so Judah hatches a little plan. He says, verse 26, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be on him. I mean, after all, he's our brother, our own flesh. And it says, you see what it says there? His brothers listen to him. 
Reuben's lost all credibility. Judah's the alpha within, the, within the, these brothers. But Judah says, well, rather than kill him, let's sell him off as a slave. That's better. We don't want his blood on our hands. And so they sell him for 20 shekels of silver, or 20 shekels, which would have been about um, a pretty typical slave rate. And uh, it, 20 shekels is, represents about two years of a minimum wage laborer work. And Reuben returns distraught at what they had done, but unwilling to even do anything. He sort of rips his cloak and he's, oh, I can't believe we did this. But Reuben has the power to go track down the Ishmaelites and buy Joseph back, but he doesn't. He just grieves and weeps. And look at what they do next. Verse 31. They took Joseph's robe, they slaughtered a goat, dipped the robe in the blood, and they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it's my son's robe, Jacob said. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. You see what happens here? You know, we, we talk every week about God's grace, and God is far more gracious than you can imagine. But that doesn't mean that sin doesn't wreak real destruction in our own lives. Do you, see, do you Think about this. Remember Jacob deceiving his father? Over it. What did he use to deceive his father? His brother's cloak, a dead goat, remember the goat skins? And here's his sons doing the exact same thing, taking a dead goat, taking their brother's cloak, deceiving him. He's dead. And he's, he's, he, he's mourning and he cannot be com- uh, comforted. And so little, do we know, little does Jacob and Israel and his brothers know is that Joseph, well, his brothers do know this, but little does Jacob know, is that Joseph is now stripped of all of his inheritance, all of his blessing. He has become nothing but a slave. He's powerless, and he's en route to a foreign city, a foreign empire, actually, a world power to Egypt. And so there you have it. The brothers, they, they, you know, they dealt with the word of, they dealt with the dream, dream, out of the picture, the dreamer is gone, the dreams are gone, we eliminated the possibility that God's word would come to fruition, right? I mean, how could any of this stuff happen at this point? What's the prospect of any of this coming true? Their brother's out of the picture. Now, he's not dead, but he's as good as dead. He's a slave in a foreign country. But, remember what we're talking about here? It's the Word of God. It doesn't stop. You can't stop it. It's like a mountain. You can use all your might to kick and headbutt and punch the thing, but there's no, there's no fruit to that. You can't stop it. And his brothers can't stop it, right? All flesh is like grass. It's glory like the flowers. The grass withers and the flowers fade. 
but God's word stands forever. And against all odds, this tragedy right here, their very effort to stop the dream, to stop the word of God, becomes the event that brings the word of God to fruition, that makes it happen. It's the means by which God raises Joseph up and fulfills the dream. It's the means by which God's word comes to pass. And whenever lowly actors here on the human stage try to control and manipulate and clip out parts of the scripture that we don't like or put a ban on the Bible, it's futile. You can't stop it. In many of those places that I mentioned where the Bible is forbidden, there's, there's revival taking place in those places. The Spirit of God is at work raising people to spiritual life in Christ. Well, 2,000 years later, the Word of God came not in the form of a dream, but in the form of a baby, right? The Word of God became enfleshed. And Jesus' brothers, his people, the tribes of Israel, they hated him. They couldn't stand him. Did he do anything? Joseph has a lot of problems. We understand why Joseph wasn't like. But Jesus, all he did was pour himself out for others and speak truth. But still, they couldn't stand him. And they made an effort. They, they, they didn't like him so much that they did the same thing that his brothers did to Joseph. They stripped him naked. They turned him over to the Roman authorities for a crucifixion. They pinned him to a tree. And they probably thought to themselves, perfect, word of God extinguished. We got this one out of the picture. But little did they know that what they were doing was the very means by which he accomplished his purpose. It was, his lifting up on the cross, was in the, that was his enthronement. That was the means by which he accomplished what he came to do and set up his kingdom on earth. This is what God loves to do, is to show the wisdom and power that he has in weakness. His crucifixion was the means by which the word, way back in Genesis 3.15, that we looked at in the fall of 2020, that the word that, that, that a child, a son of Eve, would crush the head of the serpent, that's what he did on the cross when they thought that they were putting an end to the word of God. Now, Joseph's descent is going to continue, as we're going to see in the chapters ahead. It's going to, it's, he's going to continue to decline, to descend into lower and lower stations in this world. But he will, uh, we will see God exalt him. And we will see the dream stand. It will stand in such, in such a clear way. Um, and, and, that, and it stands for us too. God's word stands for us. And at the center of that word is the gospel that we talk about every week. That Jesus Christ died for sinners so that they could be forgiven and receive mercy. And he was raised to, from the dead on the third day so that all of creation itself can participate, including us, his children, all of creation, into a resurrection, resurrected new world order organized around the lordship and kingship of Christ. That's our hope. And I know this is, how, this is where we are right now. We're, we're Joseph in the pit. Maybe, maybe that's where you're there. Maybe, maybe life's okay. Maybe it's really hard. But at some point in our lives, we're Joseph in the pit. And we're thinking, how is this word of God going to come true? There's no way. But it does. So it will for us. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for this powerful uh, demonstration of how your word holds. No matter what we do to try to stop it, 
no matter what authorities around us or people or uh, whatever the case may be uh, do to try to thwart it, it's hopeless. There's no, there's, there, there's, it's impossible. Your word stands. So we pray that you would help us to submit ourselves to your word by the power of your spirit. Help us to respond in faith, repentance, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.